0: This is an RNZ podcast. First word that comes to mind is shagging, bonk, rooting,
1: procreation, the ins and outs of sex.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, oh, bang. Bang. bang! What? Bang! So it's called bang. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm, bang. <laughs>
0: again with a bonus episode fresh off the press. So we just shared an episode of Bang that looked at long-term monogamous commitment, and in that episode we heard from author and podcaster Christopher Ryan. He was talking about the book that he wrote with his wife Casilda Jetta, which was a New York Times bestseller called Sex at Dawn. Because there was a lot of ground to cover in that episode, I could only include bits of the interview, but it was so interesting that I thought you might like to hear it in full. So you know what you're about to hear, this isn't a super-produced bang episode, it's just a half-hour interview over Skype with very little editing. So feel free to skip this bit and tune back in on Monday for the next official ep where we're exploring ethical non monogamy The book Sex at Dawn explores the prehistoric origins of modern sexuality. And So I started by asking Chris to sum up what we've tended to believe about human sexuality and how he, Casilda, and the anthropologists, scientists, and researchers highlighted in their book believe we might have gotten it wrong.
1: What we call the standard narrative of human sexual evolution basically posits that men and women have conflicting agendas when it comes to reproduction that men because sperm cells are cheap and plentiful, uh, cheap in a biological sense, very easy to create, don't require a lot of metabolic energy, that it's in men's best interest to run around spreading their seed as it were as widely as possible and the minimal parental investment that a man would have is basically nothing, just uh, you know a couple of minutes of extreme pleasure and then all the responsibility falls on the woman. So using that same logic, an ovum is much more metabolically expensive. It takes much more energy. There are a very limited number of them in the woman's body. And if she becomes pregnant her minimal parental investment is very high, at least nine months of pregnancy and then breastfeeding and so on, extreme uh, vulnerability. The theory that grew out of that sort of thinking is that we have these conflicting agendas where men want to have brief encounters, meaningless encounters, with lots of women and women want to find a provider who will take care of her and her children during pregnancy and during the vulnerability of childhood. What we found when we looked into hunter-gatherers and closely related primates like chimpanzees and bonobos and human anatomy and physiology was a very different picture that is actually much more hopeful because men and women aren't necessarily locked in this battle over their opposing agendas.
0: But I guess for proponents of monogamy as the natural state, it maybe isn't so hopeful for them.
1: Right. Well, you know, the thing is, the picture of human sexual evolution that emerged from our research is one in which sexual uh, exclusivity was not really part of our ancestors' expectations around relationships.
0: In terms of whether monogamy is natural to us as a species and you're you're saying it's not, can we talk about some of the evidence that you see as pointing towards that?
1: First of all, let's look at primates. There are 300 in some species of primate, depending how you differentiate different species, but let's say at least 300 species, many of which live in complex social groups. Complex social group, meaning uh, multiple males and females uh, who have reached adulthood. Mm. Of those species, precisely none are sexually monogamous. So that's one. Interesting point. Mm. There are no species of primate with multiple males and multiple females living together as adults who are sexually monogamous. So, to believe that our species is naturally monogamous and has been since you know million years ago or whatever, you have to accept that we are the only one out of three hundred and some species that uh, exhibits this behavior. Beyond that, let's look at the body. The fact that the human male has external testicles. The reason the testicles are outside the body, which obviously is a riskier place to keep them than inside the body, is so that their temperature will be lower. That three or four degree Fahrenheit temperature difference is significant in allowing sperm cells to last much longer. So the testicles create sperm cells and store them in this sort of cooler environment, so that the males can ejaculate at short notice in multiple successions. So males can ejaculate four, five, six, seven times within a 24-hour period and still have viable sperm cells for each of those ejaculates, even though it takes longer to store them up to actually create them. Uh, This is a very clear indication of sperm competition. Sperm competition refers to the idea that the competition between males to fertilize the females doesn't happen at the level of the individual where the males are fighting, which is the way it's typically imagined, you know, elk locking horns or something like that. It can happen at the level of the sperm cell. So multiple males can copulate with a given female and the female's reproductive system will actually help select among those different sperm cells. This is very important when you think about the fact that our ancestors lived in highly interdependent social groups of hunter-gatherers that shared food, shared resources of all kinds. These were tightly knit social structures that took care of one another, and the idea that the nucle- there would have been nuclear families separated out and the hunter would come back with some meat and only share it with his woman and their children. This is the basis of the standard narrative of human sexual evolution, but you don't find this in actual hunter-gatherer groups. In fact, you find the opposite, where hoarding or excluding other members of the group and from your resources is grounds for being expelled from the group. So Social cohesion, uh, social harmony is extremely important in in these groups. Therefore, it makes sense that this biological competition would have been happening at the cellular level and not at the individual level. Otherwise, the men would have just been killing each other left and right.
0: Mm. The implication here is that sex was a shared resource, just like every other resource was shared. And that that selection was happening at a cellular level so to maintain the integrity of the social structure. But we can't help but imagine those things without also imagining jealousy and all of those kinds of emotions that come with our modern relationships. Would that not also negate the social structure?
1: Well, or you could say it would arise and tear the social structure apart if you weren't sharing sexual partners. Mm. I think jealousy is going to exist in any case. And some cultures amplify it and celebrate it, like ours, where we have endless number of movies and songs and and narratives about you're the only one, and if you leave me, I'm nothing, and every breath you take by Sting, that's considered to be a great love song, where he actually wrote it about... Orwellian surveillance and it's clearly a song about a stalker, right? Can't you see you belong to me, you know, every breath you take I'm watching you and that's considered one of the great love songs of the 20th century. It's insane. So we have these these narratives that accentuate this sense of dependence and exclusivity and and control, but other cultures go the other way, especially hunter-gatherer cultures uh, where there's a constant reinforcement of the idea that everything is shared. No one owns another person. Adults don't even own children. This idea of that's my kid, you know, stay away from my kid, that, that's not something that's a human universal. That's very much a modern Western approach to parenting. Hunter-gatherer women typically breastfeed children, whether they're biologically theirs or not. When uh, a baby is born, uh, in many cultures, the baby is passed around among all the adults. The children refer to all the adult men as father and all the adult women as mother. The assumption that our ancestors lived in nuclear families and had this sort of um, fragmented social world that's a reflection of what we see in the modern world is deeply flawed. In fact, the way our ancestors lived was radically different from how we live today. We can certainly see reflections of it in the modern world. For example, the fact that social isolation is extremely painful for us. More people are living alone now than ever in the history of our species. And it's not coincidental that suicide rates are higher than they've ever been and depression is higher than it's ever been and addiction is higher than it's ever been. Clearly we're living in a way that's not natural for our species. Think about how we punish criminals. The worst possible punishment for a criminal short of execution is solitary confinement.
0: So if monogamy isn't a natural state for humans and wasn't always a thing, when did it become a thing and why?
1: Yeah, Casilda and I argue that monogamy is basically an artifact of agriculture. Uh, And we're not the first to argue this. Friedrich Engels argued this in the 1800s and, and others before that. Basically, when humans settled into agricultural villages, started farming and had domesticated animals, the... Structure of human society changed radically. It changed from an egalitarian social structure, which is typical of of hunter-gatherers, to a hierarchical social structure, which is typical of agricultural and post-agricultural people. Disease became much greater. Uh Our health plummeted. At the same time, the status of women dropped. It plummeted from being equal to that of men to being Essentially, breeding livestock. And the status of women is only now recovering in in some societies, in other societies, it remains as bad as it's been for ten thousand years. If you look at the Old Testament, for example, there's the famous line about "Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife," which I always thought was, an imploration to respect your neighbor's marriage, to just sort of keep your hands off. But if you read that in context, you find out that it's not about respecting marriage, it's about respecting property. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his ox, nor his house, nor his ass, nor his slaves. That's the context. You know, we see this well into the 20th century where the definition of infidelity was when a man had sex with another man's woman. If a married man had sex with a woman who didn't belong to another man because she was a slave or a concubine or a prostitute, that wasn't considered infidelity. We still see this when the father walks his daughter down the aisle and hands her off like a box of jewels to, to the man. She is property. She's a breeding vessel for a man, and the importance of this is tied to what scientists call paternity certainty. So when you have property enter into human existence, which is at concurrent with agriculture, this is when people started owning land, owning domesticated animals. Previous to this, hunter-gatherers really owned nothing. They weren't about ownership because you'd have to carry everything. Mm. So the world provided whatever was needed. Only when you have settlements do people start to accumulate wealth. And when you're accumulating wealth, then it becomes important that your wealth passes on to your sons. So how do you make sure they're your sons? You control the sexual behavior of your partner or Mm. partners. That was the radical change. That's when monogamy entered into human behavior. And it was essentially to assure paternity for the purposes of inheritance.
0: On the subject of paternity, can you tell us a little about the Mosuo people and the way that their relationships and sexuality is expressed in that culture?
1: Sure. The the Mosuo, also known as the Na people, have been living around Lugu Lake in southwest China in the foothills of the Himalayas for Uh, centuries. uh, We know that they were there at least as far back as the time of Marco Polo because he wrote about them on his travels along the Silk Route. And they are a society that according to the standard narrative we outlined earlier should not exist, should not be possible because they are a society that has absolutely no concern with biological paternity. The way the society is structured is uh, matrilineal, so the property passes from mother to daughter, not from father to son, as is typical in most societies, and the women are sexually autonomous. Everyone is sexually autonomous, but in most cases, in most societies, it's only the men. In this case, it's the men and the women. And there's no shame associated with sexuality or with the number of partners one has or whatever. That's considered personal business. Nobody's gossiping about it. It's not titillating or scandalous. It's just part of life. And the way it works on a practical level is the girls live in the house of their mother and brothers sleep elsewhere. Either they've got a a house in the fields with the animals or... They'll sleep with different women. So when the girl reaches sexual maturity, she gets her own bedroom, which is called her flower room. Mm -hmm. And that will have a door that opens into the courtyard of her mother's house. But it also has a door that opens to the outside. And she can invite a man to come to her room and spend the night with her, whomever she wants. The only rule is that he has to leave before breakfast. The the guys aren't allowed. They're not invited to breakfast. But (laughs) he can spend the night there. And she can invite a different man every night. She can do whatever she wants. It's totally up to her. So you say, well, what happens when she gets pregnant, right? The responsibility for her child falls to her, her sisters, and her brothers. So the sort of paternal presence in a child's life comes from one's mother's brothers, your uncles. The biological father is a non-issue, that doesn't matter. So it's a very interesting society in the sense that most mainstream scientists believe that paternity certainty is an inherent human concern, that Mm. men have always been obsessed with controlling the sexual behavior of women so that they could know whose children were, were being conceived by those women. In fact, uh, the most will show that that's not a universal concern. Similarly, in the Amazon, there are half a dozen or so societies that have been studied in the 20th century by anthropologists who all believe that a child can have multiple fathers. This is called partable paternity by anthropologists. And these are societies that have no interaction. There's no common language or trading or anything. So this is a belief that appears to have arisen independently in different Cultures. And their thinking is that a fetus is literally made of accumulated semen. So when a girl starts to menstruate, she's a little pregnant, but a fetus won't start developing until she's accumulated enough semen. And so she like all women, will want to have a child who's smart and funny and good-looking. So she'll make sure she has sex with the smart guy, the funny guy, and the good-looking guy to get some of the essence of each of those guys sent to her baby. And then when the baby's born, each of those men will acknowledge their paternity. So the child can have two, three, four different fathers.
0: One thing I like about when you describe these uh, matrilineal or matriarchal societies is how well men seem to fare under it because i feel like you know alongside discussions of female empowerment and women kind of claiming their sexuality there can be a response of what are men supposed to do what is our role now but in a lot of these societies men seem to fare pretty well
1: yeah i would say most men fare much better under societies in which women are respected and empowered see the th- the thing is matriarchal societies are sometimes hard to recognize for male scientists because for centuries, male anthropologists claim there were no matriarchal societies because what they were looking for was sort of a mirror image of patriarchal societies. So they're looking for societies in which women oppressed men in the same ways that men oppress women in so many societies. But what you find is that when women are empowered, they don't wield power the same way that men often do. There isn't the same level of coercion, there's much more sort of collaborative, collective, consensual decision making. So if you look at the most for example, which are clearly a matrilineal society or the meningabaku, I think is the pronunciation, and Sumatra, what you see is the men are very happy and very relaxed. Bonobos, which are a female dominant species, the males have a lot of sex and are very low stress compared to chimpanzees, which are male dominant and the males are constantly fighting and... Even the, the, the sort of alpha males in the, um, the, the ruling coalition of males in chimpanzees, they're very highly stressed because there's always challenges coming, there's all this fighting and competition happening all the time. So everyone fares better in a more relaxed, egalitarian environment. Uh, We were talking earlier about the reflections of our ancestral past in the modern world. Mm. If you look at what's killing modern people, we talked about social isolation and how that manifests in depression and suicide and addictive behaviors and so on. But what is the one thing that underlies almost every disease process in modern humans? It either causes it or it makes it worse. Stress, we are not good at metabolizing stress. Which tells me that this theory, this neo Hobbesian worldview that our ancestors were constantly struggling for survival, always at the edge of disaster, clawing each other's eyes out to dog eat dog world and all that stuff, that's not true. If that were true, we'd be very good at dealing with stress. We but would in have fact, developed an
0: evolutionary at. response to, to cope exactly. with it. Exactly. Mm. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so you look at hunter gatherers, you actually spend time with hunter gatherers or talk to anthropologists who have. And what you find is they're not struggling for survival, they're taking it easy. And even when they're working, which is 15 to 20 hours a week, they're doing things like hunting, fishing, gathering fruits that we consider to be like a weekend activity. Their idea of work is what we call play. So this idea that life was a terrible struggle before civilization and only after civilization did things uh, start to get easier, that's... The opposite of the truth.
0: There must be some evidence that things weren't always easy and breezy, or are you do you say no, actually? It was easy. It was easy. Well,
1: no. I, no, I mean, obviously there are exceptions. We're talking about hunter-gatherers. We're talking about roughly 300,000 years mm. uh, in many different environments, in many different climactic shifts, uh, you know, droughts and and all sorts of situations. So... What I will say is that the typical hunter-gatherer, even today, now the hunter-gatherers that are left today are living in the most remote areas of the world in some of the most hostile, difficult ecological conditions. Even like the Kung San people in uh, Botswana in the Kalahari Desert, very forbidding environment. They only work 15 to 20 hours a week. They live very leisurely lives. They nap during the day. They spend most of their time sitting around telling stories, having sex, playing with children, what we considered leisure activities.
0: I want to, we are wrapping up, but before we do wrap up, I just, there's something that I really loved about the book, a thread throughout, which is female sexuality. Can you tell me a little bit about what science is about female sexuality and whether our our understandings of it are accurate?
1: Well, you know, when we're talking about sexuality, it's so interesting to see how the views of female sexuality changed when women became more prominent in science. Among primatologists, there's this sort of funny story about how male scientists for years said that no other animal experiences female orgasm that that's a, a uniquely human trait and the there's really no explanation for it it's not biologically necessary it's it's probably an artifact of male orgasm like you know like male nipples it and so you lucky women you just sort of piggybacked onto our, our biology.
0: Men got nipples uh, and we got orgasms. That's yeah, great.
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which doesn't explain why you got multiple orgasms. We maybe. need this.
0: Don't take it away from us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's the story, right? But then in the 70s and 80s when you started having women uh, become prominent and, and professors and teaching primatology and so on, and they're in the labs with the, the various monkeys, the women w- looked around. And it's like, well, these macaques, these female macaques are clearly having orgasms here. Like, just look at her. And the men are like, I don't see anything happening there. She's grimacing. And they're like, yeah, she's coming.
0: That's weird and- that you men didn't recognize orgasm. That's very strange to
1: me. <laughs> well, maybe they have never seen one, you know? Mm. Anyway, so, you know, a lot of the the sort of hostile, most hostile pushback that we've had uh, from Sexaton has been around this notion of female sexuality being oriented around pleasure and not obligation. And uh, that really bothers some people. They feel very threatened by that. but. You know, from what we read about hunter-gatherers, what we've seen in the primatology and in the bonobos particularly, is that female sexuality is extremely potent for, you know, male scientists. That's often been seen as sort of a nightmare scenario. But if you understand sperm competition, you look at our species as being basically promiscuous, Mm -hmm. then it makes sense that that female sexuality would be somewhat ravenous and interested in variety and so on, because those are processes that lead to healthier offspring, and that's what reproduction is about. They also lead to healthier social groups, more cohesive interdependent social groups. And that's what allowed our species to survive over the millennia. Mm. So it makes perfect sense within our paradigm, whereas in the standard narrative that developed over centuries and decades of male-dominated theorizing, female sexuality is a real conundrum. You know, women really aren't interested in sex. They just put up with it or see it as, you know, something that they can give to a particular man in in return for his resources and protection. What we're saying is, no, women have sex because it feels good, because they like it, because they like intimacy, because they like the sensation, because the same reason men have sex. Why would the males and the females of a given species be in constant conflict? That just doesn't make sense. It's like... And it's like a species born with original sin or something. It's nonsense.
0: So I want to—I'm going to read something from the beginning of the book. It's a question that you pose that is one that returned to me at the very end. How many of the couples who managed to stay together for the long haul have done so by resigning themselves to sacrificing their eroticism on the altar of three of life's irreplaceable joys—family stability, companionship, and emotional, if not sexual intimacy— are those who innocently aspire to these joys cursed by nature to preside over the slow strangulation of their partner's libido. Are they? (laughs) Because this is
1: where I get to at the end of this book. Look, you know, publishers love prescriptive material. When we sent in the manuscript, they were like, wow, this is great, but, you know, we need another chapter saying what to do.
0: (laughs) That's what I'm asking you for now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And. I said, no, we're not going to do that. The only prescriptive material that we wanted to put in the book was just saying, look, be honest with yourself. The way I look at it is monogamy is like vegetarianism. Clearly it's not the natural behavior of our species. Our species is omnivorous. The evidence for that is overwhelming. But that doesn't mean that vegetarianism is wrong. That doesn't mean that vegetarianism may not be uh, a very appropriate response to the contemporary situation. We don't at any point argue that monogamy is a mistake or that people who are in monogamous relationships are kidding themselves. All we're saying is approach this from a position where you're informed, approach this from a a position where you understand what the challenges are going to be because of the trajectory of your species and the history of your species.
0: Thank you so much, Christopher Ryan. Chris wrote the book Sex at Dawn, along with his wife, Gisilda Jetta. This is a bang bonus episode, the fourth official episode of season three, which is exploring ethical non-monogamy in a bunch of different forms. We'll be with you on Monday. Ka kite.